Greetings, I'm Josh and you're listening to Little Wars FM, the premium companion podcast to our club's YouTube channel. As our battle of Brandywine Project draws closer and closer, Tom and Greg are still working on a home rule system to allow us to resolve this massive battle in a single afternoon of play. If you're just jumping into this podcast, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to parts 1, 2, and 3 to see how the development process reached the point of playtesting, because that's where we are today in this episode. Playtesting is a critical part of the rule development process. It's where you put your ideas into the fire and see what withstands the heat. Are there rules missing? Are there mechanics that didn't play out the way you expected or intended? It probably won't surprise you to learn that everyone involved in this playtest game had suggestions for further refinement and improvement. What you're about to hear in this podcast is broken into two parts. First, you'll hear actual audio of player feedback after the first play test of the rules. The players bring up four or five topics that need to be looked at, such as wheeling, morale tests, shooting, and retreat. The second part will be Greg and Tom discussing the results of the second play test and the final edit of the rules before it sees the table. So, let's head to the club and see what the players thought of the game after the British just finished crushing Benedict Arnold and the Continental Army at Freeman's Farm. Sit back, relax, and if you're at home for the evening and perhaps painting up some miniatures, pour yourself a scotch and enjoy part four of How to Design Homebrew Wargaming Rules. What about kind of the big picture of how it worked, how it felt. I, I liked it. I really liked it. The only thing I would say um, is tighten up the wheeling in the tight areas. Like define how, how close you can get and how far you can get. Like you said, you know, without a charge, you can't get within three. Well, how does that work when you're moving? And just because, like I said, these so guys wheeled in. it doesn't look like you're charging. That. Yeah, because like these guys wheeled in. I mean, these guys, I knew I was going to take them out with that. But to me, I, I tried to keep my distance from them a little bit. But I think just having a definition, you can't enter within one inch. Could it have worked if we had said there's just a three-inch zone of control? <clears throat> like, you can't come within three inches of someone unless That's you more. have charged them? I think would that, that have worked? I think that would work. That would have probably forced me to spread out more so that I wasn't bumping into those zones of control. Because I'm charging one unit. Right. It might have been better to, for me then to have gaps between my units and spread out a little bit more. I think it just sort of paced it a little bit differently. I mean, the, there is the trouble, that, you know, given how close things were, as soon as you finished one combat, you were... You're in another. Within, you were within <laughs> right. two inches to begin with, yeah. which is fine. It may maneuver why difficult, leave, but I guess it should. Why not leave it there, you know? One inch. One inch? You just don't touch unless you're in combat, I guess. Yeah. You can play around with it. I mean, part of it Mm -hmm. is to to put it in a... A lot of times the reason you stop is somebody has defensive fire, stuff you have to resolve before the charge goes in. Which isn't in this. You don't have that. So it's really more um, the question of trying to keep charge distinct. And for that reason, I do think you've always got to roll for it. Um, And it might not go in. Yeah, I like the idea of maybe subtracting inches for all the DPs. 
um, from the charge distance. Just to make it a little less talk, predictable. Yeah, if you've got that disorder, disruption, whatever it is on you, you're not going to charge as far mm -hmm. or as hard if your unit's disordered. So those disorders matter more on your charge distance. Then. Well, that's a so. good point because I know one of the things we talked about was charges are fairly rare right in this period actual cold steel one mm -hmm. and so we actually had more we had them all the time all the time so i think i think the gap and the idea that you if you have to pay for the dps it really is going to force more rally before i charge again and then you might get shot up before you get a chance to charge again so unless you're really close quarters i think it might Reduce like it might have reduced, uh, you know, a third of the charges tonight, maybe. Which is which is a good thing. I agree. Yeah, I think it would have been nice to see more lines shooting at each other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and less well, charges. Right. To be honest, with the fire and move restriction, you can only do one or the other. Right. It kind of makes it difficult to just sit there and shoot because I want to move. So for me, I was charging to move. It was charging was the only way to move and fight. Yeah, I mean, do we, that's a, that's a fair point. And do you want to get rid of the fire and move distinction? Or yeah, I don't know. Or it's half your dice if you moved is one way of dealing with it. Uh, we should get more firing. I'd like to see more shooting. Yeah. The other thing, the difference with the shooting, the reason I think you saw the combat was like. It's just more effective. Because and with the class difference of the troops I had. Which you don't get in the shooting. Right. So there you've got the question of, man, if I want to do some damage and I've got decent troops. Yeah. I'm i got to charge. Plow through. Which, I mean, one would save those troops after the firing is done to, to push everybody else, you know, off the hill. But um, So that's it. That, I do think there's more too much attractiveness to the charge. Um, so the... I guess then one thing to consider would be to get rid of the fire and move prohibition mm -hmm. because then maybe people would be more inclined to stand off and shoot. Mm -hmm. Other option would be to make the charges more expensive. Mm -hmm. Cost three dice. Three dice. Well, that's a good point because this was, we actually <clears throat> backing up to that for the first three, four turns. We almost always had we extra had dice. dice. Yeah. And that surprised me. Yeah. So we, maybe we, maybe the formula for how I gave each side well, dice just needs to be lowered. Well, my only point is I get, I get charging, adding more for the charge, but I'm trying to think of the Brandywine scenario. Right. And when you kind of rescale, like, or not rescale, but if the command points would work out the way they did here, which is first half we had way more than we needed. And then the second half we were using them up largely because I had separated my brigade mm -hmm. and you were also doing a charge every one or two charges every turn. So, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm either good. I'm good with either you look at the formula again, or you just make the charges more expensive. I, I agree. One, one of the two, I'm not sure which one would work better. What'd you think, babe? The, always having die left over at the end, I, I found surprising. I felt like we could do whatever we wanted, it's mm -hmm. just sometimes we couldn't. And it didn't feel like we were ever forced in a position to have to make a choice between this or that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's great to, being able to do whatever you want, but it, there was not like a decision tension point. Yeah, not enough command friction. Mm -hmm. 
I would agree with that. Yes. Um, and that might just be an issue of we need to reduce the dice. Uh, or maybe we need to consider some kind of radius for the leaders. I mean, the leaders really played no role in this battle. No role. Yeah. I mean, Except and, I kept forgetting not to take the flags off. And that was a little, <laughs> maybe slightly bothersome. I was hoping the leaders might have a little bit more personality, a little more involvement in the battle, but really it's just like, you know, they generate my dice. and. Well, the, the Benedict Arnhem, I mean, that... that... The three dice you get from that, but uh, the risk... The risk is huge. Yeah, you did that because it's the last Right, exactly. I don't think any rational person would would do that. (laughs) I mean, I would like to see more... um, Again, it goes back to the question of have we cut out... Is there any role for another command layer? Just as a either... It's the restriction this guy has to be within a zone for you to do something... Um, I'm not sure of that, but uh, and this is a little with only one general per side. It, uh, I mean, the thing is, most of these battles are very small battles. Yeah, I mean, Brandywine is <coughs> unusually yeah. large battle right. for yeah, the yeah. period. Right, but leaders are much more active than we saw. They are. Meaning and, that they are really the. And my concern with adding more leaders into the game when we first talked about this is that they become table clutter right. and that there's just too much going on with like, oh, they're all generating their own dice. But maybe there's an in-between ground where you can represent like on a smaller base a guy like Morgan, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a sort of trusted lieutenant who doesn't generate any CPs mm-hmm. but has some other function. Right. That way, you don't need to keep track of the fact that he's generating dice, but he's just you know he's a little base that's out here to do something. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean you could just give him a a free combat roll, not a, but you know he adds a plus, he adds a dice, or he you know yeah, just to get people something to minor. Yeah, something minor. Yeah, <clears throat> it did feel like it was missing an intermediate level of command and control. The yeah. uh, the rallies were. And the restriction there, I think, is right, meaning one unit, only one unit can rally. Oh, per general. Per general. Per right. general, yeah. I mean, that, that, cause you, otherwise, mm-hmm. with all the dice we had, <clears throat> oh, we would have been back to ground zero before. There wouldn't have been any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there wouldn't have been any blood. Yeah, it was very there. easy for my one unit that was doing most of the fighting to get rid of those. Yeah. Yeah, I, the other thing that, that we saw over here. I guess it's historically accurate, but from a game standpoint, I don't know if it's too overpowering, is that the cascade effect mm-hmm. of losing is really devastating. Right. Because not only have you lost in that particular combat, all of the units that are you know within three inches are suffering fairly serious effects. And when you're on the winning side, of course, you take one blood token yeah. and you're right. totally fine. Right. So it's... I think in some sense it's realistic, but it does really throw off the... And that may also be a... Um, it's like they don't get push. their nose bloodied enough for the victory they got. Almost. To spread. Right. And that may be another incentive to spread out. Hmm. More, you know... But you, you, can't, but you can't spread it's out. It's linear tactics. It's hard to spread out. With the three-inch um, cohesion distance, although you can't if, spread if you out. Were, if you were more line, right, three and three and three, yeah, and somebody rallied there... There's going to be very little impact. A little bit of this was you guys were all every every unit came they were down the road. Um, <clears throat> but if you have to be within three inches for cohesion, 
and the penalty is anybody within three inches. Yeah, but if you're in a line, only one unit. Or if you're in the middle of the line, two. Well, that's true. You could cap it and say no more than two units suffer the cascade effect. I mean, it's a weird little thing. And then you say, I I got, mean, the I, victor can choose who that is. I got another idea to consider that just came to me. Mm -hmm. What if it's the nearest unit? Just the nearest. The nearest unit. And honestly, that's where my brain was when we, when we began the game. Which would be nearest unit. Nearest unit sees the effect. Nearest and unit. That's what I what's just the maximum distance you allow the nearest? Well, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I, probably three inches. Because I had to. Keep, I, I'd probably keep it at three inches. The cascade. And say, you know, the, whoever, whoever is closest <coughs> within three inches of this negative thing. I think that's, yeah. And you could still keep the rule that if you interpenetrate people on your way back. DPs are added because you're interpenetrating a unit, mm -hmm. but they may not suffer the morale consequence. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. Add a DP for the interpenetration. Keep well. I think that that's already yeah. here. Um, oh, so you were getting the DP and you were getting the morale, and, and that's why it was cascading it. down here to a point where so you know, once it wasn't we just lost a, three a couple inch, combats, it was a nine yeah. inch. It was a nine inch string of catastrophe. <laughs> yeah. that was because happening. they were stacked up. And yeah. they weren't wide yet. Right. And that's the highway of death. It was a highway of death down here. Um, something else that occurred to me when we were playing is uh, I thought the artillery was kind of worthless. Yeah. Like, worthless. Like, why are we even, you know, I, I we're, we're rolling I, dice to what effect? Like, I stopped bothering with that guy. Because right. It was like, what, I need a five or a six and I do one DP? Right. What's the point of that? Right. It's just, it's just taking time. Right. So I think we've got to look at maybe. I know that artillery in this period is not effective. Historic harassment. Yeah. It's a harassment weapon, Which, but you got to make it worth something. Well, I mean, yeah. you could you could upgrade it to two DP. Two, two, just... Oh, two DP as a consequence. I was yeah. thinking you were gonna say two dice. Oh, you yeah. could do that either way. Two dice or one I, dice. I kind of like the two DP. Yeah, because if you do get a five or six, yeah. it's counts. somebody under fire <clears throat> needs to get their act together. Just going back to the shooting, it still seems to me. I mean, and I'm not sure it historically makes sense, but is, I'm, again, I'm trying to get people to want to shoot. I just think shooting overall. You want to incentivize that a little more? Well, maybe, maybe it's if you don't move, you get extra dice mm. for the, so. You can move and shoot. You can move and shoot. And get your normal one base per, right. one die per. Or you but stand. if you stand, there's a bonus. Yeah. Which would have helped my... Oh, absolutely. I, I like that. That, that would have probably changed the calculus. Yeah. I like that better than the alternative of moving and shooting is less dice because then it's just like, right. it's not effective enough. Right, exactly. But now you're talking about making it extra bloody <laughs> Right. if you, you, stand, if you stand. Which which actually gets to the whole point is somebody who's... Which we dropped out. We talked about... I mean, we, we basically captured the orders within... The use of the dice, but it, it now loops back and says, "Okay, if you were willing, if you're going to be on defense, which is basically mm -hmm. you're not moving, you're received, then you should get that bonus." Is there anything to consider if a unit did not? Because right now we had a lot of cases where both units marked a charge, or even where somebody may not have marked a charge because their opponent was obviously going to charge. Where if you're not marked for a charge, do you get a defensive fire before that? Melee strikes hard. Should you get some kind of closing fire in the charge phase if somebody charges you? If you, yeah, that's a good If point. you are the victim of a charge? 
and you didn't counter charge, you don't have marked for a charge. Because that could change the calculus too, because that might that might also make somebody less it might it might make charging less desirable. Yeah, that's actually, to know yeah. that it, okay, if I charge that's, that's actually a I'm gonna take a round of defensive fire. Yeah. Because knowing all the other rules I played, where that is, that's always that's the consequence. Oh, I don't know. I really want to feel good about this charge before, <laughs> yeah. or I've shot that guy down to nothing. Nothing. And now yeah, I'm, now it's time to finish up. Yeah, the I think that, that that could be. A, I kind of like the idea. Yeah. Of the closing fire. Yeah. And that I don't think that's too complicated because you can just add that right into the charge step. Right. Like it's all resolved oh, yeah. during during mm -hmm. the charge. The charge is so simple to begin with. A little right. Yeah. Extra isn't going to do anything. Yeah, a free round of a free round of fire. I mean, is it going to be a normal full strength fire? I would say a single die, not like if you're going to do the double for standing and shooting. So there's no bonus for the, the, the from not moving. Uh, so the other thing I think that we we might have to add, uh, and this is something that was coming up for V over here, is uh, we've got to add something about making moving backward an option. Yeah. I mean, other other than backing up three inches, like yeah, I'm thinking, if you about face and... if if you want to do a retreat move, oh yeah, 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 you can do it at full speed. Yeah. But you're facing the wrong way. <laughs> I'm totally down with that. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't yeah. it doesn't count as a wheel or anything like that. It's just I'm always it's in a, favor of anything that'll clear space. Space and, and now you've got to basically <laughs> to bring that unit back into play. You've got to. About face them and um, okay, I like okay. yeah, I like Good some of these back. changes. Thanks for guinea pigging. Okay, folks, there you have it. There was some raw, candid audio of the first play test. It sounds to me like there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to get this game ready for the tabletop. So as we continue, let's listen to Greg and Tom after they did a second play test with a different group of guinea pigs from the club. Alrighty, folks, it is the 18th of July, and Tom, I don't know how long it's been since we last did a call, but I feel like it's been several weeks, and quite a bit has happened in the interim since we recorded our last podcast uh, session. We've actually had two different playtest sessions since then, and we've made a number of changes, and I feel like after the second playtest, we're actually on the eve of another round of changes. And of course, the game with the Battlefield Trust is approaching ever closer. <laughs> I wish we had a little bit more time to iron out some of the final <laughs> kinks, but I think, uh, you know, the pressure is on and we're going to we're going to have to deliver this thing one way or the other. Yeah, the, they were two very different play tests. It, one sent us in sort of one set of directions. And then this last one was um, a very extreme. I mean, I think it revealed obviously some issues which we'll come to uh, that uh, sort of like, oh, yeah, uh, but uh it was interesting it did it. I, I, I like when Ed and Miles are on the same side. I think they're a great um, one. You you can almost count on some real luck showing up from one or the other. Uh, but they also, they seem, Miles particularly, but Ed, you know, doesn't leave any stone unturned in looking how to exploit a, a set of rules. So that's what you want in, the, in a play test. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we joke about it, but that actually is really important. I mean, for anybody out there who's listening, who's working on maybe a homebrew set of rules, it is really critical to have playtesters who will put a game through its paces. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not just, you know, playing to have a good time. They're actually looking for holes to poke. 
And in our last playtest, I think there were some very clear holes uh, that appeared. And I guess to bring people up to speed on that, um, what was that? Two Mondays ago, we ran the Battle of Camden. Mm -hmm. And uh, Camden, for those who may not be familiar with the historical circumstances, is uh, very late in the Revolutionary War. It's Horatio Gates in the South. And the Americans have a very large army that is mostly militia. And they come up against Cornwallis, who has basically half their force, but with a, a higher quality army. And so we ran that historical scenario. And historically, the Americans are annihilated. I mean, the militia break and they rout with like a cascading effect. And that did not happen in our playtest. Uh, the Americans, it was bloody. It was very bloody on both sides. But the Americans stood there and they went toe to toe with the British and that didn't feel quite right to you or to me or to really any of the players. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it was a, it was a good matchup. I'm glad we saw it because there, there's some militia uh, at Brandywine. Obviously that's kind of our test case at the moment. The one we do keep in mind. Um, so yeah, it certainly, the, the militia was able to, well, one, it was two things. It was the militia was a very large unit for starters, which also raises some issues around, how does that fit into a combat scenario or even firing if they're doing defensive firing, which we have in the combat? Um, so that the large size and then the quality obviously didn't match up where we wanted. But, uh, yeah, it was good questions. So I know we each made some notes and I think we should just kind of go down through our notes more or yeah. less in the order in which the game flow progresses and uh, why don't we start with initiative? Because one of the changes that we made from the original game is that you and I decided in one of our last podcast conversations that we should allow the commanders on each side to spend command points in order to win the initiative role. And I think we would both agree after that playtest that we're rethinking that change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh you know, it's one of those things. I, I viewed it as originally as a way to, okay, so something to soak up some command points, right? Or just to give a little bit of, you know, less random. But it clearly gets to the point when you have somebody who, who's a defender, you know, we, we it's like they actually end up with the initiative most turns of the game. And that that's happened in other games we've played where the defender just really has a luxury of points to spend. And so they had here and they spent it, on initiative um, or whatever else they wanted to. But yeah, I, I would go back to, um, at, at most you could add one, but to make it simple, uh, I'm okay with just a straight up initiative. I could go either way there. Yeah, it, this is one of those things that sounded like a good idea and I understood the logic for it back when we agreed we should make this change. But now that we've seen it, it just makes so much more sense after the Camden play test that, yeah, if you've got a clear attacker defender scenario, of course, the defender is going to have extra command points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're always right. going to have extra points because they're sitting there, they're defending. And it doesn't make sense that they should have the initiative. So I, I, I agree. I think we've, we probably overstepped on that one and we should get rid of it. And the other interesting conversation that we had in the wake of the Camden play test, which I think maybe we should consider for historical scenarios like Brandywine mm -hmm. is that maybe what we need uh, are some scenario specific rules that give the attacker short bursts of initiative. So maybe on certain turns at Brandywine, how should either have the initiative just automatically 
or he should have a big advantage in getting that initiative. And and that doesn't need to be something that's baked into the rules. It could right. just be for this scenario, you know, on on turn X, if you are the attacker, you you know, you just have the initiative because it makes sense historically. That that seems like a kind of a clean fix for something that maybe we mucked up a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think I think scenario specific initiative uh, bonuses, either you know, for a certain number of turns, or as you said, randomly throughout. Uh, and I think that's an easy one to uh, test, even just a brandywine, um, just to make sure that the British, you know, the, the Americans, just by being on defense, the rules don't advantage them, uh, which we know terrain is is going to be a tricky one, uh, if depending on how the British attack. So, I think we're agreed with that. Uh, you know, let's just take it basic, make it scenario specific and uh, keep it at that. So the next phase of the game that comes in our version of this is what, you know, the leader phase or the leader rally phase. And you and, and Miles both pointed out in the Camden play test that we, we probably need to tighten up the wording on that. And it would be cleaner to give leaders the option to either attach or detach in this phase, you know, I, I had originally written it that it, you could detach leaders at the end of the turn. And it, I, I agree now in hindsight, I, I probably shouldn't have done that. It would be a lot cleaner if that all happened in one particular phase, choose to attach, uh, choose to detach. But the other interesting sort of bigger discussion that came up in this phase was about rallies. <laughs> you know, you and I, you and I were both running the Camden game, observing as GMs, and we were like constantly begging the players, hey, are you going to rally? Are you going to use rally? Do you want to try to rally? And these guys are just looking at us like, no, you know, we're not, no one did it. Like, they did only happen a couple times in the game, and we're just like looking at each other like, what's going on here? Why isn't anybody using the rally? <laughs> And that's even with uh, the the severe penalty at, in that play test that disruption points had in combat. It's just like, why would you drag this beat up unit into into combat? But there still, it wasn't enough of a hook to say, yeah, it's worth it for me to rally. So clearly, we have to address something there. Yeah, because we want people to use this. I mean, we need you know, pe people should be doing the rallies. I mean, that's one of the main purposes of the leaders. Frankly, it's one of the only purposes of the leaders in the game, and that's sort of a separate problem we could discuss. But I like the idea that we came up with with all the players around the table in the immediate aftermath that rally was just too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, in, in our previous version, and actually in the original loose files in American Scramble, every command point that you spent rallied off one disruption point, which made total sense to me. But players in our play tests just didn't want to seem to incur that expense. And we don't have a whole lot of leaders in the game either. So the fix that we talked about, which I think makes total sense, is that if you just spend one command point and you attach the leader, he could rally off either all of the disruption points or the idea I think Miles thought of, which I really liked, was that he could rally off the number of disruption points equal to his leadership rating to like the number of stars that we gave him. Which, I don't know, that seems like a nice way to maybe add in a little bit of the historical personalities of the leaders. You know, somebody like Washington or Lafayette, who might have a little more charisma and leadership ability, could, you know, you could see them the benefit to them rallying off a few more disruption points. What What are your thoughts? I know we never come to a conclusion at the time, but now that you've thought about it for a week or two, what are you thinking about how we rework this? Well, I think the leader star rating is a, is an elegant way to do it. Uh, the, the concern I would still have after that is that really, is it going to make a dent in the rallying needs? Now, 
when we get to combat, we we have toned down the penalty for disruption points. At least I think we discussed that. So before it was how many points up to you know up to four, um, and now it's just going to be one if you have any disruption points. But I just looking at the if I remember looking at the table, I mean there's just a lot of disruption points. So again, it's going to be an issue of um, how how often is it going to happen if we're decreasing the penalty on the combat, here's where I'm going with it is, I mean, you really want it to be attractive for somebody in this leader phase. I'm going to attach my leader. I'm going to rally because I know I'm going to want this unit to charge next time. I mean, that's what you'd hope to kind of see. And then the question is, what am I going to do that? Because the penalty for disruption points isn't that bad now. I mean, it depends on where we go with that. So Either the general stars will be enough, I think, or it'll be like, okay, is that still making a dent? I think they'll be cheaper, clearly. But so I had, I had toyed with the idea of just a you purchase a rally and then you roll to see how many points you cleared for a brigade. That was one, uh, but it adds it's not as simple. But the point would be, okay, for a brigade, I've purchased, I got a dice, I put it over here, I'm rallying. It it detaches from you do it depends you don't have a brigade leader like in these you know the the lieutenants and the generals we have don't match up to brigade so you still have to be selective about it but again it's another dice roll this is a cleaner way hey I've got two star guy he can remove two points uh, hopefully that'll be enough to catch people's attention it is a concern um and i guess another way to maybe skin that cat would be should we be inflating the star ratings i mean that's something i'd kind of resisted early on but right. if a unit can accumulate up to four hits which is how it is in the original rules the fifth hit is a full casualty then maybe we just need i mean all the leaders we've been using have been like one two or three stars maybe everybody just needs to get an extra star essentially yeah, maybe. I, I agree. I wouldn't want to make it ridiculous, but uh, that would be a tweak, you know, increase the stars by one, maybe. Maybe. I think once you lay it out, I don't I don't have in front of me the star rating for everybody at Brandywine, but see what that looks like. Um, I mean, ideally, you'd want you'd want the ability, I think, to, I mean, bring a unit to almost fresh before you send them into combat. Now, the problem is, the whole dressing the ranks at the end, I think we're going to get to that too. It's, it wasn't really used very much. Um, and uh, it's almost impossible to use without more tracking of events within the game, like were you fired upon or not fired upon. Uh, so I think, uh, I, but I think with that idea, okay, maybe you don't have the dressing of ranks. Is the general stars, is it enough to basically get a unit back to some semblance of health so that they're going to be willing to attack although you know this is something we talked about too if you if you do rally a unit a, a regiment back to fresh they're going to get shot up during the closing fire <laughs> so, that's right so it's almost a guarantee that you're going to have disruption when you go into the combat no matter what yeah well you're right you're right so then what's the point other than getting uh tokens off the board for you know being a disordered unit you know that's the it does raise the, I mean, I think it's because, again, it depends on what penalty we end up in the combat. If you end up one for one for disruption, absolutely it matters. If it's just basically, it's a state, I'm either disrupted or not, then it's probably not going to be worth it to clear your disruptions. I mean, it's only a minus one or whatever we make it on combat. Right. 
Well, maybe anyway. we'll maybe we'll circle back to this after yeah. we get to the combat section. Um, the last thing I wanted to bring up in the leader section before we move on is that, um, you know, I think it was Miles who suggested that the leaders in the game didn't feel like they really had enough personality. Um, which I am kind of sympathetic to. I mean, in, I wrote Altar of Freedom many years ago, and one of the things I really wanted to emphasize in Altar of Freedom was the personality of the leaders. Mm -hmm. Now, that was something that I think we talked about a little bit in our first podcast episode for this, but we haven't really gone too far down the road of adding personality to the leaders other than the star ratings, which are not in the original Loose Files rules. That's something that we concocted mm -hmm. as a light a light version of personality. That's a little bit of variation. Well, uh, I mean, I don't know how much personality to add uh, at the moment. I mean, just in terms of priority for Brandywine or not. Um, it, it's hard to know. I think it's just the fact that in the scheme of things with everything else going on, it's like um, leaders, all they did was remove rallies, I guess. You know, the, the penalty for combat is pretty severe. Uh, the chance of, you know, falling. And I guess it wasn't clear to people what that meant, other than you come back with half the star or missing star. If you or you're dead. It, or you're <laughs> dead. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, I, I certainly think we both agree, you know, we want the Lafayette moment, you know, at Brandywine or, or Green or others that uh, make a difference. It's, I, But I agree, I don't see a, you know... To me, it's it, to really make a difference. You almost have to switch to some sort of like, you know, uh, you know, you re-roll or you. I mean, something that where you can, you know, bend time and change fate. <laughs> you know, and it's not going to get there with a couple of stars. I mean, especially if they're soaked up by basically removing disruption points. No, I, I think if we wanted to add more personality to the leaders, the stars, that's a step in the right direction, but that that's clearly not enough. I mean, we had that at Camden, and Miles commented that it felt a little vanilla for them. I think the only easy solution for this would be to, I mean, basically add like a personality trait. Right, right. Um, which, look, I, I certainly wouldn't have more than one per leader, and and the real question would be, do, do all the leaders even need them? You know, maybe lieutenants don't have personality traits. Maybe it's just kind of your top dog that gets one or only such certain leaders, essentially. Um, and then those could be scenario specific. So maybe that would be a way to kind of and, and basically this is exactly what exists in Altar of Freedom. There's scenario specific personality traits and the leaders have several of them. Maybe here they just have one. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm just sort of spitballing an idea here. It's it's definitely something I would consider. Yeah, I think it's worth considering. Probably, I'm I'm making the distinction between in long run with the rules versus, you know, between now and Brandywine, you're going to come up with a scheme for traits that may or may not get used much because people are overwhelmed right. with all the other mechanics. So that that's probably just my distinction. I absolutely love the altar of freedom version. Um, I do think they get used there once people understand what they are. So I think if you could, it's interesting. I don't know what your, you know, you, I don't know if you've done psychological profiles on American revolution leaders yet, but uh, <laughs> clearly an altar of freedom you have, you know, you have some insight into their character. I, I was, I'm a little more familiar with that war than I am with this war. Yeah. <laughs> 
just a little bit. So yeah, good, maybe yeah. that is a long run. Maybe that's a long run project for us. Yeah. To circle back to. Um. All right, let's move on to our next section. Um, this is a big one. Charging. So charging is the next phase in our turn sequence. And obviously this is wrapped up in melee as well. So maybe maybe we'll just kind of do charge and melee all all in one here. There's a number of different things that came up uh in our in our last play test that I think that we definitely should talk about. Um one of them, you know, just sort of straight off the bat was a question that Ted had about whether higher quality units, first or second class units, should be able to maybe like re-roll their random charge dice. Because, you know, this is a change that we made from the original game. We decided to make charges a little more interesting and risky that you didn't have any guaranteed movement. You would roll 2d6 and that's how many inches you could go. So you could go anywhere from 2 to 12 inches on your charge. Very random. Which I which I like. I think that's very in keeping with the period. You never kind of knew if a unit was going to close or not. And then Ted said, "Well, wait a minute. You know, shouldn't my elite grenadiers be more likely to close the charge than the militia?" And I think the answer to that is definitely yes. But the question is, is that a complication we want to introduce or not? <laughs> and this is this. This is always the question when you're designing any rule system. Okay, what am I really trying to accomplish and how many complications do I want to introduce? And I'll admit, I am totally on the fence about this one. I'm kind of leaning no, even though I think historically it's appropriate, but I could easily be talked into adding it. It's not like it's a huge number of rules to add. It's just, you know, it's a death by a thousand cuts. It's just you keep adding rules, you keep adding rules. And is this one that's worth adding? Right. Well, you know, this is one where you might, you might, you might hook it to this. So, I like the randomness in the sense that I'm not always guaranteed that I'm going to get into a charge, right? Uh, <laughs> of course, the play tests inevitably start with somebody at roughly like 11 inches away deciding to <laughs> test their luck. And, Dude, do you know what the odds are here? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so, and, but the range is most of the time you just need to get within, you know, seven inches outside of getting shot up for two turns and rolling. And seven, you should get in there. Uh, the one thing I was thinking of here is I don't think it's worth the complication. I agree it makes sense. But how about this for a thought? Maybe it's just another role that a leader plays if you attach them to a unit for a charge, they get to re-roll a leader attached unit gets to re-roll one of the dice. Idea is the leader is coordinating it, bringing it home, puts them at risk so people might not do it, but it's a way to say, again, pump up the leader a little bit. Uh, I really like that idea. That kills several birds with one stone. Yes, I'm making a note right now. Excellent. And maybe even the leader. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. maybe. Uh, would you allow him to roll just one of the dice or both the dice? Just curious. I could go both, honestly. Okay. Uh, but I would certainly say one, but I could I could see a leader's allowing charge re-rolls. Okay. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. Go ahead and add that in. That's, that's elegant. That's good. Um, okay, so another issue that we had with charges, and this is this is actually a, this is a big issue. We had a lot of questions among the players about the details of how to line up the units. Yeah. How does one unit exactly make contact with another unit? And where this got really squirrely is where you had like a really big unit charging a small unit or vice versa. 
And it's like, well, okay, you know, if my four base unit is charging a 10 base unit, if any of the bases makes contact, is that a charge? And then it starts to get even more complicated when you potentially try to coordinate multiple units. Like, I've got two small units that are charging a big unit. Uh, that got weird. That, that got weird in a hurry. And I know at the time we were spitballing potential ideas, and I didn't know in the interim had you had this clarified in your mind at all, or are you still debating how we're going to crack this? Yeah, I was, I'm still debating. I, 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 I thought about it for a while. I looked at some rule sets, uh, you know, similar, different combat things. Uh, and almost all of those, interesting enough, had some sort of support mechanism, right? So one of the units counts as support and you could pull people in and we haven't gone that direction. So it's kind of late to, to add supports. Um, I do not like the idea of like, I mean, one, why would you charge a three base unit? Except they did. <laughs> they did as a speed bump. That was miles. That's miles right. was trying to create a speed bump. Right. And, and there it's like, okay, well you tied up a whole large unit. Um, and that doesn't feel, you know, right. Um, one, but two, you know, but I, I don't know an easy way to prevent that. Like, oh, what's the right, what's the right, what are the other five bases of that large unit do if they're not in combat? Um, so then I started going down the path of, okay, are you, are we really just talking about soaking up bases, right? So like if you charge, you know, a large unit with, you know, three bases, the most you're engaging as if you're the charger, you can pick it, I guess. But again, it gets back to the speed bump. It's sort of like, you know, so I don't know. I, I, I've, I've gone in circles with it. You have any breakthroughs? Um, well, I had one thought. I don't know if it's a breakthrough. So the three options that come to mind is first of all, the way we have it right now, which I suppose is an option, but with its problems is that if any part of your regiment touches another regiment, no matter how they make contact, we're going to call that a successful charge. Mm -hmm. And that led to all sorts of questions among the players. So I'm probably disinclined to proceed with that option. The other option that we, we discussed during the game was, well, you should try to go center to center. So mm -hmm. you have to at least aim for the middle base of your unit to hit the middle of the other guy. And then however many bases are involved, you got to aim for center to center. That also, as I've been thinking about that, I don't think that totally solves everything. I mean, what if the center of your charge can't reach the center right. of his? Right. I mean, is that we a failed that. charge? Yeah, we, we're kind of measuring like weird angles because obviously there's all kinds of weird circumstances that come up in a war game. And that's one of the challenges in writing any kind of war gaming rules. There's always weird circumstances. <laughs> like you can't write a rule for every single right. circumstance. It's just not possible. So that led me to my last idea. And my last idea is to actually steal a page from Chipko slash Age of Hannibal. And the rule in that game is that the attacker must conform to the defender. So it's a successful charge if any part of your base or any part of your unit contacts his which is what we were doing. But once you've made that contact, you then actually square up. Even if it requires extra movement, it's okay. Mm. It's just kind of like a cleanup phase thing. You now square up your bases to his bases. I'm wondering if that is the answer. That would sort of create a clean, orderly line. 
And then the rule, I think, would be that you have to try to match off the bases as best you can, which means you can't have like four of your guys overlapping his and hanging out in the breeze mm-hmm. unless you have more bases than he has. You you have to match up your bases as best you can. Mm-hmm. I feel like, it. look, that's still going to, I think, leave some weird situations. We just haven't seen them yet. But in my mind, that seems like a potential fix to at least some of the questions. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that 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 conform to the uh, the defender uh, that makes sense. I think there's there's a lot of direction there. The question I had before we get too far down that is just in the sense of, um, I guess okay. So you've got multiple attackers hitting, so two three base units, right? We've got a couple, or just even a three and a four. Hitting like an, uh, I think there's a 12 base unit is probably the worst case. Um, so there it's which one, I guess that you have to pick one of those as the lead attacker. And they, he, they can form in a way that both fit, right? So that again, you avoid the, you avoid anything hanging off the end. You have to match up to as much of the enemy as, as you have bases. I think you said that. So that could work. Um, I guess where it went to me is I started to think about really the size of some of the units. So, like I said, you know, a 12 base militia unit, which is one of the issues we were dealing with the other night. I don't know how many bases that was. It was maybe 10 or 11. Um, you know, do you do you restrict what the the maximum frontage frontage is of a unit? Like, because we don't really have any flanks or you know those have. So there's no real reason for a unit to be stretched out 11 long except what you get a better firing line right uh but so it was sort of like okay for do you force them to be double ranked but so i'm just spitballing that that's where i was going to try to avoid that super long unit um but you know i i think that's probably that's probably a bridge too far there um i'm just trying to think of the I think where it gets weird is actually the opposite to the example you gave. You know, you gave an example of, oh, I've got three, you know, two small units attacking a big unit. I think where it gets really weird is the reverse. You've got two big units that are trying to pile in on a little unit. Mm -hmm. And if you use my solution of, oh, well, you've got to conform to him, you could get this weird circumstance where the attacker says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, I've got like a 10 base regiment and another 10 base regiment, and they're each going to touch a couple bases of yeah. your four base regiment. Right. And it's just going to be like totally bizarre. And I guess it's just like, well, are we okay with that? I mean, I don't know really how to fix that, honestly. Well, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to maybe saying, um, look, you don't need to do that to get the benefits of combined, co- like meaning just to eliminate why that would be an advantage to somebody other than taking up space on the table. That's always the question. Uh, but in terms of the combat benefit, as long as you've designated one unit that could reach them is part of this attack, then you get the the way we handle the multi-unit combat, which is you can reroll your, you know, your, your failed dice. But I mean, so I don't know why somebody has to do that um, to get the benefit. I mean, they still might try to do it because, again, part of it was, especially if you're defending something, can you use those? So I would want to know, have we come up with any way of solving why somebody wouldn't use a speed bump, the two or three base unit 
And to me, that's still because we're going to be looking at a defensive action of Brandywine. And I think that would be that wouldn't be a great outcome if it was like, oh, we just kept throwing these little, you know, small American units out and they basically held up, you know, the entire British attack. I mean, some of that's okay, but not if it's like we saw at Camden where it was clearly meant to. So there's a question of, you know, how would you, you either have to make it more painful for, uh, so where I was thinking in terms of flank, where we, we really don't have a flank thing in there, unless you're, you're well behind it is, if you're a small unit attacking a large unit um, and they outflank, like say you square up to them and they out they outflank you in both directions, that should be, maybe that factors into combat. Hmm. Meaning, so you're, but again, people probably do it because they're, they're willing to sacrifice a unit. So then it gets back to, again, one of the other themes that came out is, okay, is a, is a militia unit really going to attack a British grenadier unit? <laughs> yeah, so that's the next charge question. We do not have, and the original game does not have any kind of morale system, really. Right. So, you know, we had multiple players asking, well, why, why, why would a militia unit have the balls <laughs> to charge a British grenadier unit? Which right. actually did happen in our Camden mm -hmm. playtest. And it was like, well, you're right, that really wouldn't happen. Uh, but I don't know how to restrict that unless we want to introduce an entirely new mechanic, which is that we're going to have units taking morale tests. So along those lines, another circumstance that came up, which I thought was even more acute, was we had an elite Tarleton's Dragoons, an elite British cavalry unit, the only one in the scenario, charge an American militia unit. And the militia should have just frickin' melted away like snow mm. in the summer. But they didn't. They stood there and they they engaged in a round of hasty closing fire and they won. They mm -hmm. repulsed the dragoons. And that should never happen. So that leads to the this same question of well, should charges involve morale tests? Should the attacker have to take a test? And should the defender have to take a test? And the only way the combat happens is if they're both still there. And actually, I do think there's a lot of historical precedent for us to introduce this mechanic, by the way. Mm -hmm. But gets back to that question of do we want to be creating entirely new mechanics and adding whole new sections to the rules? Right. And I don't know. I, I, I haven't even decided in my mind how I would vote on this. I'm uh, of all the issues we're discussing tonight. I think this, this question of a morale test is one of the stickiest ones. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I mean, I can't think of another way to solve the militia aggressive militia or, you know, big disparity in units. You know, one of the outcome you often see in, in a combat table uh, is, uh, at least a couple of the ones I looked at recently, and is, you know, when you do the math and it's basically one of the results is, oh, the, the, the other unit left before combat. You know, so it's, it's one of the lines of, you know, yeah, we didn't, you, you took a penalty. It really wasn't combat. These guys ran away. So that's an outcome where where the odd that's usually driven by the odds are so lopsided, right? You know, if you had nine base to three, and you had the quality difference, I mean, you end up with a number of dice. I, I, I think once we know what that looks like, then you could say, oh wait, there's a way in there to say if you've got three times the dice of the opponent, they just go back twelve inches, or 
in, in term or six or twelve, right, and lose a base. So it could be inserted there if once you understand what the. So there you might have cases where okay, you have a grenadier attacking a militia, or Tarleton's dragoons who were first class, right? Um, I think I think nail. <laughs> so we keep getting deeper down the hole of saying. Okay, well now let's. How are we on the same page in terms of the combat? Because you looked at, you reanalyzed some of the combat probabilities, and uh, that's that kind of could reveal a couple of different avenues for dealing with the morale. Okay, well let's get into that. Um, <laughs> we so keep skipping sections. To <laughs> we're, we're skipping deeper and deeper, but I mean we should get into this. So, so this is something that you and I messaged about on Facebook a couple of days ago. I completely, completely fucked up the the modifiers for close combat. And the reason that it got so, so screwed up is that Andy's original game is much more deterministic. You know, a, a unit rolls a single D six and then you add fixed modifiers to that. Mm -hmm. And we converted to the fistful of dice system, which we don't need to retread why we did that. I think that was a nice conversion on our part, but I simply kept the modifiers Mm -hmm. But the, the statistics, the probabilities on that don't work out the same. Mm -hmm. Andy's modifiers were plus three for each class level, and that was a guaranteed plus three. So if a first class unit hits a militia unit, that's a difference of three classes. That's plus nine that you get. Well, I just ported that over and said, well, you get to add three dice, right? So the, the first class unit gets nine dice. But remember, you need a five or better to actually get a success, so our modifiers are essentially three times weaker than mm -hmm. Andy's modifiers. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is why what we saw militia standing up so tall in the Camden game, because basically they were three times as effective as they should have been just on pure math. That was just a complete screw up on our part, mm -hmm. which means we would have to triple the dice pool, which now we're starting to talk about frankly, like comically large handfuls of dice. <laughs> right, right. And that might be like a little bit too much because because we picked five or better as our success threshold, that's only a 30% chance of success. So now you need like huge buckets of dice in order to get up to the probabilities that Andy had. So this, this opens up a huge can of worms <laughs> in the whole combat table. That's right. Less than a week to go. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. We're playing this battle in less than seven days from now. Uh, yeah, the, the and nice we've got a big one professionals, here. We know we could run any game and it would be, you know. That's we, right. Be fine. But, but we wanted to sue. So so I guess the question is, I don't think we're going to end up with, I mean, the, there's just a lot of issues with going to uh, more dice. I mean, I like I like the direction we took. I agree. And I think it would be players like doing that, particularly novice players, um, but rolling 25 dice, you know, isn't going to work. So then it becomes a question of, you know, and I know uh, you've probably given some thought to this. Is it just a changing in the set of the five and six, then a first class unit, can you work it in that they hit on a four five or six or do it somewhere like that where you're, you know, not, not having to roll as many dice. Um, but uh, that seems to me, Somewhere in there, you might find a way either in the combat outcome or how you shape that up, the morale test or the morale differential that could have an impact. I don't, I don't, I'm not a, that, just back to the morale, I'm not that huge a fan of, I want to charge and I got to roll. Now I got to roll. I got to roll. I think originally, honestly, the variable movement for charge 
that we ended up with. To me, that was a little bit of capturing, you know, you can't always, th that randomness there, you could, if we tied it to class, would have something there. But if you did that, and then you also got to roll a morale to charge, it just feels like, now we know from the beginning, we don't believe a lot of charges represent the period very well. But at the same time, uh, it's where we spend most of our energy because players want to charge. <laughs> players want to charge. Yeah, <laughs> we saw that repeatedly in both of our play tests. Players want to charge. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know. What are you thinking on the combat resolutions for the class differentials? <sighs> I've really, in my mind, been resisting the idea of creating different to hit values based on class. Mm -hmm. I, I I love the the cleanliness of five plus being a hit. Just mm -hmm. no matter what, five plus mm -hmm. is a hit. You know, I, when we originally discussed that, I thought, ah, oh, you know, that's perfect for our purposes at Brandywine. It's like so little to remember. But that does lead to our current predicament of for these probabilities to work out, we would need to have huge buckets of dice to represent the training differences. So another way to get around that is to say, okay, what if we changed the universal to hit number to four plus mm -hmm. that now reduces the number of dice needed by a third because we've improved the probability from 30 to 50%. However, the knock on consequence of that is that it's going to make shooting even bloodier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, now if four plus is the automatic to hit number, well, boy, you know, shooting was already fairly deadly in our game, which is a change that I really like that we made. We added the concept of volley fire and hasty fire. That was excellent, and I think it produced something that all the players thought was very historically appropriate. But if we're going to change that to hit number, my God, the shooting is going to become devastating. Mm -hmm. So I'm 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 hesitant to do that. Um, the last way to go about this, and this is the one I'm trying to think about as the cleanest option, and let me get your thoughts on this, is we could dramatically reduce the number of dice that you roll based on the number of bases in your unit. You know, right now we have a very clean mechanic where you get a D6 for every base. Mm -hmm. um, if we reduced that, then it would make training class more important mm -hmm. because you'd be getting more dice from training than you would from just the sheer manpower mm -hmm. of the unit. Mm -hmm. But then I, I realized that this then is like, well, well, then how many dice do you get? Do you have to like divide it by half? <laughs> You get half the number of bases rounded up or down. And um, I feel like no matter what we do here, we're going to lose a little bit of the beautiful simplicity yeah. simplicity of what we had before. I'm not sure there's a way around that unless we just want to have huge buckets of dice. No, I think that's that's not the way to go. Um, I just think in terms of even, you know, uh, in any normal situation, buckets of dice no big problem, but running a game like at Brandywine with lots of players and it's just, a, I mean, I like the, I like the, that, that adjustment where you, you know, you cut, you get one die for every two bases, um, which the only question I would have there is again, one of these unintended consequences. You've now taken a pass over the last couple of weeks through the order of battle uh, both to reflect historical, but also a few tweaks to make sure that the structure of our rules doesn't, you know, disadvantage either side. Uh, I don't know. So basically saying, a, you know, 11 base unit 
is now what is you know we'd end up with five well, you, whether you round up or down five or six dice right and a three base unit is only you know two or dice two. or one or two well you certainly wouldn't be charging with a three base <laughs> unit maybe um uh, but the class units the class so let's say let's think about that i know there are british grenadier units of of seven bases um those are there's two of those there's a seven and a six um and so the seven base would go down to say three say we're rounding down um and then they would get the plus three per training class or you're thinking about a mod to that i i think i think we could probably keep the plus three if we lowered uh if we lowered the the dice based on manpower Okay, so they're say they're going up against militia. They're going to get their uh, four to is it four to one? So three, so nine dice from that. Yeah, uh, nine plus the three, twelve. The militia, you know, even the big militia unit, which there are at Brandywine. There's two, ten base. Yeah, there's not a lot of militia at Brandywine. No. And I mean, that's I've what made Camden such an interesting playtest. You yeah. know, Camden had a ton of militia, but that's other than like Camden and Bunker Hill, most of the historical scenarios don't have a huge number of militia. Yeah. So let's see, if you were the attacker in your below rating, so in this, I'm just say we're taking just a, you know, a third class unit and attacking your grenadier, right? That's going to be a difference of six dice for class. And then it the 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 size is so definitely it puts more on the class. Um, so if I'm a but if I'm a third class attacking a grenadier, I don't get any dice adjustment for class. It's only the class above, or is that a is it a negative? It's just a, it's no, just no. It's it's not a negative, but your opponent gets those dice. Yeah, because it's an so there. I'm if I'm a militia or a third class attacking a grenadier, I'm going to get. Yeah, I, I could see that being, that could be reasons why you don't go toe-to-toe with a grenadier. I mean, in a more noticeable way, right? I've got a large unit, but, you know, at the most, that's going to get me a couple extra bases. The class is definitely going to be weighted. Yeah, I mean, the problem with keeping the 3d6 for the class is that, remember, because a 5-plus is a hit, on 3d6, statistically, that's only worth one hit. Statistically, only one of your three dice is actually going to be a five or better. So what we're really saying in our current model is that each training class is only worth one hit. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, I, I don't know if that's weighty enough. I mean, this period, I mean, this is something Jim Perkey talked about when I did the interview with him, and, and you read this in, in all the accounts, Training and, and and discipline mattered much more in this period than manpower, much more. Right. And it feels like we're not emphasizing it as much as we should. Mm-hmm. But it's a little tricky in our current construct to figure out how to fix that. Uh, looking at other modifiers, we're still, you got the British bayonet charge. Uh, you'd have defending woods, one dice, two dice there. And then for the disruption points, are we still going to, 
Are we going to go to any disruption is worth minus one? Anywhere from one to four disruptions worth the same. That would be my vote. Yeah, that's I agree. So I was just trying to. Yeah, I mean, the other the other option to consider and I, I am leaning against it, but the other option is to not penalize disruption at all. I mean, disruption is not penalized in shooting at all in the original base rules. Um, so you could you could theoretically say, oh, well, it's not going to be penalized here either. The penalty is that you're accruing casualties. Essentially, it's enough of a penalty. Yeah, but yeah. but but uh, going into close combat does feel a little bit different to me. Mm -hmm. than just shooting. So I think I'm a fan of keeping some penalty for the disruption. Yeah. Well, you could, the other thing you could do just again to swing the side is, is it's a little bit different than your logic, but it's, it's basically whoever has the majority, whoever has the most disruption takes a penalty. The other guy doesn't. Um, just trying to get a little bit of daylight from it's a different calculation, but it's also, yeah, you got three, I got two. It's, I get the minus one. Um, I, I lose a dice, but I'm only losing a dice. And so that's is losing. So again, I was trying to do that comparison. If I'm a seven grenadier, so I got three dice plus nine or six, if I'm going against a third class, that's nine dice is one dice statistically on nine dice you're going to get three hits yeah which again doesn't feel like i mean there are we have but again the combat outcomes the the casualties are within the outcomes you can pick up a whole casualty no matter what the you've just got to win the the advantage um in the combat yeah because either the otherwise, the reason for the disruption, if you do the disruption on both sides, given our experience, both sides are probably taking a minus one penalty to the dice. That's right. And I, that's just okay. We're trying to get enough dice in here to get, you know, reasonable. So there, I, it's a little bit like okay, let's not take away both dice. Let's just take away somebody's dice. Hmm. Uh, I like that idea. So I think you really, I mean, I, I agree with you. It Ideally, you'd want a bit more oomph out of each level. But uh, it's it's kind of hard to go from one to two. I mean, you'd have to either change the, the, the score on the dice to get a hit, which I agree with you. That's a major change from five to four in terms of just balance everywhere else and shooting. Um, Let's see, we got the general, the leader could be, you get the star rating for the leader, so that's a good point to pick up another few dice here. If you attach the leader, which yeah. most people were not attaching leaders because they didn't want to risk them getting killed. That was, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I definitely lean towards the what we just discussed more in depth here, which is, uh, you know, Cutting the bases, you get one one dice per every two bases, or I don't know if there's a minimum. Every unit has at least you you do have, you do have some three base units, I guess. 
but you know those three base units shouldn't be going and charging people they should be standing around and shooting so okay i don't have a problem with that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah okay so we're thinking in close combat we're going to cut it to you get one die per two bases okay but but in shooting we're thinking of leaving it is that right Ah, see this this I admit this pains me a little bit because I'm a big fan of symmetry in my rules. Right, right. So if I have a mechanic in one place, I love being able to use that mechanic in another place. Yeah, I I, I certainly agree with that too. Uh, the, here's the things that kind of bug me about shooting a little bit is again, as it currently stands with one per per base. Um, you know, it depends on your geometry there. I guess you've, we've allowed them to shoot out of 180 unless they're doing um, hasty fire, which I think is a nice distinction. Uh, and again, I guess it's got to be, have we said it's got to be every base that reaches a target? Um, the way it's written right now is that you do measure for individual bases. I think as yes. long as that's kept in there, that's that's fine. Yeah. So there I get back to... Um, I'd be afraid to, I, I mean, I'd sort of be afraid to weaken the casualties. I mean, the shooting felt okay in terms of casualties as it was. Um, I, I just, I'd be concerned that we might get less, less shooting again. Um, I mean, I, ideally, I mean, I, I would love it if it ended up with, you know, fewer charges and more standoff, just, you know, shooting. Um, so. So just throwing an option out here, um, we could potentially cut both shooting and close combat down to one die per two bases rounded down but change the to hit from five to four. So now you're rolling less dice, but we've compensated for that by making it 30% easier to get a hit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I'm just, just, just spitballing an idea here. Well, 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 here's the thought. Here's the thought. Uh, we don't have any, in shooting, we don't have any bonus for class. No. Right. Is there no. any reason to have any bonus for class? Because if um, you cut hmm. it in half, then you could, you could give people dice back, pump the dice back up based on the class. Because uh, again, we had the whole issue there was a you know militia unit standing off and trading blows with a grenadier unit, our first class unit, and they were both doing equally well. You know they. Right. Um, I don't want to over you know strengthen, but that's just a question of do you get a any bonus for shooting that that and again I'm coming to that mainly because okay you cut the dice in half you go to four five six instead of going to four five six because I know that's a that could have 
you know, a lot of variables changing here. Um, you still keep that, but you say, okay, we're going to cut the number in half, but oh, now you can get a class bonus for shooting. Not saying it's the three, although to be symmetrical, <laughs> that you keep it. Um, uh, yeah, it starts getting tough, doesn't it? So which one, if you were to, I know you're thinking about a play test tomorrow, if you had to pick one approach, given you have less than 24 hours. Uh, Thanks for which pointing one? that out. Okay, I think what I would be inclined to do is I would be, my, my gut reaction would be that I would keep it consistent. And I would say that if you were doing hasty fire, you have the number of bases. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing volley fire, Instead of, you know, previously it was double, but now it would just be one to one. So the ratio would stay the same. So volley yeah. fire, you roll a die for every base. Hasty fire, you roll a die for half of your bases. And I guess this could have some serious ramifications, as you pointed out. But I guess then, because we're cutting the dice down so much, I would make it a four or better as a success. For shooting. For, for everything. For, for anything. The whole the whole game, so that would mean anytime you roll a die, you got a fifty fifty shot, which is gonna. I mean, that changes the probabilities of everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the knock on consequences are of that. This is a tough one. I, I uh, I'm I'm admitting this is difficult, and I don't have a great answer for this. Um, Well, again, hasty fire is if you've you've moved, right? correct, or you're correct. going to move. You're going if to you're move. going to move. Um, volley is you're you're planning yourself, and uh, so the I definitely like that distinction with volley, uh, but I'm just wondering how many times. Problem with volley fire is, um, you know, it certainly favors the defender. There's no problem with that. Uh, but it's just one of those things, how many people will pull it off? Like, you know. Well, one change that we discussed, which I think we definitely need to make, is we discussed that militia units should not be allowed to use volley fire. Uh, completely. Yes. Okay. That's a very good point. Yeah. We, and that, that would, actually addresses that problem I just brought up. Yeah. That partly fixes the problem you mentioned of the militia going toe to toe. Yeah. With the British, although again, to point out, at Brandywine, not a whole lot of militia units. So this no. rule isn't really going to help us at Brandywine, but down the road, as you look at other scenarios, it, it would make, I think, a pretty big difference. Right, right. Well, it depends on where the militia units at Brandywine get used. Um, if they're, you know, I think historically they were generally over on the left flank of the they were. American line and didn't see that much. Yeah, action. Uh, but they're big units. I mean, there's there's literally. I mean, because I there's I think there's twenty. There's like twenty two, or there's twenty. I think I painted eight or ten. So there, you're looking at some big units that I think people would be tempted to use. But um, but no, I think this. I I definitely agree with the militia not doing volley fire. No problem with that. So. Before we answer, before we come to a temporary resolution on how we're going to handle the dice for melee and for shooting and whether we want to make this change, I want to skip ahead to a section that I think could change, could come into this, mm -hmm. it could change, could change your thinking. 
So we talked a little bit about morale. And I think we're both very hesitant to add morale tests into the game for charging or being charged. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very hesitant to add like more rolling, essentially. Right. Yeah. However, an idea that did come up in our playtest that I am intrigued by would be to introduce some kind of simple morale test when certain triggers are reached. Mm-hmm. So one trigger we discussed would be if you lose a certain number of bases from a unit, then of course that brings up the question of, well, how the hell am I tracking that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how am I going to remember, you know, now do I have to add information to the label? Like this is the break number. Um, maybe another idea would be to have a morale test every time you suffer a full casualty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we did the count on that. It would have been 20 tests, 20 maybe. tests, which seems like a lot, but if we found a way to make this simple and really clean and easy, maybe 20 rolls over the course of a large game isn't so bad. Yeah, and it could be more for Brandywine, but probably in the way the battle will be broken up, we don't know exactly. So I, I, that one didn't worry me as much because they're important and good rolls to make. The other benefit of the morale test here, which I think would be interesting, is um, what happens. So... Do you, so a typical combat sends you back, I think, six inches unless you're really routed, which we didn't see any of those. But I'd like to see the morale test send you back out of play a bit, like 12 inches. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so I like the idea of units failing, units taking casualties, whatever the trigger is, failing, and then going back a significant enough difference distance that the attacker could make some hay in the next turn or two because you're you're definitely been put on the back foot. I totally agree. And this is something that also I feel like could add a little bit more elasticity into the mm-hmm. game. Something that you read about a lot and we didn't we didn't really get much of any in our two play tests. It was mostly a slugfest or a unit just like evaporating and kind of being killed to the last man. Right. And I agree I'd like to see more flight regroup come back, flee, regroup, come back, because that's what all the historical accounts talk about. And if we introduced a very simple morale test that had the right trigger, and again, I'm thinking that trigger is a casualty, then to your point, absolutely. You know, it could just be very simple. Yeah, you run away 12 inches. Mm -hmm. Done. You took a casualty, you failed the test, you run away. And the reason I wanted to skip ahead to talk about this is because under Melee, you and I were kind of bemoaning, or I was bemoaning, that the training class just isn't as important as it should be. Well, this would be a way to make the training class right. much right. more important. Key the morale to the class, yeah. Correct. So let me give you my idea. I've been thinking about this for the last week. What's a simple way to do this? Here's my thought. Mm-hmm. Right now we have the rule that a five or better is a success. Mm-hmm. Let's just assume we keep that for the sake of this discussion. I would say that in order to pass a morale test, you need to get at least one success. And a militia unit, class four, they're allowed to roll one die. I love it. A class three unit gets to roll two. A class two unit gets to roll three dice. And your elite Mm. grenadier unit, he gets to roll four dice. So it's the inverse of the class number, essentially. Right, right. Yeah, that's very simple. That's very elegant. And that means that, you know, look, 30% of the time, your militia guy, he's going to pass that test. But 60% of, actually, 66% of the time, he's gone. Yeah. And that's if he takes a casualty. 
And as you know, there are results in the melee table that, I mean, my God, you can take a casualty quite frequently. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see these militia units being extremely brittle. I think that has, uh, I think that really, I, 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 I'm very optimistic that that addresses that very well. So I guess what I'm saying is I'd love to see that. that that's going to be a good test. Now, here's the one place where I think it's a little questionable. There is an existing morale section in Loose Files, mm -hmm. and it comes into play as a result of combat. And if you, you remember a unit that retreats or flees, you know, within a certain distance of a friendly unit, there's like a cascading effect. Right. And in our last play test, we decided to limit the cascade to just the nearest unit, which I think was smart because it reduces the number of mm -hmm. tests. Well, what about this new mechanic we're introducing? I mean, is this going to impact the existing morale system? I mean, if you suffer a casualty and you run through a friendly unit, well, does it incur sure. the same penalty that's here right now? Mm -hmm. Which, had we moved that to one, it's a, it's a DP, right? Or it's up to three DP. It could be three DP and a casualty. Mm. And now well, it's like a yeah. really potentially crazy cascade, you know? Because... Yeah. Remember, if three DP and a casualty, well, you just suffered a casualty. And we yeah, just talked about introducing a rule that would require you to run away. <laughs> well, as much as I think that cascade, if it if it came out, it, it could work in a in a nice way. But I just I think that whole issue of um, having to roll and roll, you know, it's I think it's honestly just in terms of gameplay and uh, keeping the game moving, I think that's a problematic result that you could trigger another full morale. I would limit it probably just to, you know, you take a DP or one to three DP and leave it at that um, or some version of that. I certainly wouldn't trigger another cascade, although I'd be tempted to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's historically what happens at the Battle of Camden. Mm -hmm. That's why Camden was supposed to be an American route because they had that cascade and we're talking about getting rid of that, which for playability reasons, I think we kind of have to. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd revisit it. Uh, but I think in terms of where we are and with Brandywine, I, I just, that one, that one could be, uh, uh, I don't know that that would work out the way we think. So a way to get rid of the cascade, and this is as we're just sitting here and I'm, I have the rules open and I'm looking at it, mm -hmm. my proposed fix for this right now would be on, to keep the existing kind of morale section. And if we introduce our new morale rule, that it would trigger this one. But we get rid of the most punitive three DP and one casualty. Right. Because if we get rid of the end one casualty, that's that's going to greatly reduce the the likelihood of the cascade? Well, I mean, again, I think the picking up the DP or one to three, I think those can still be significant enough. You know, you've got an attacker coming in and now every unit behind this retreating one has now taken DP. I mean, it's, it's something. Um, but yeah, I would agree with that. Well, and to be clear, it still could cause a cascade. Because yeah, if, if you're you, if you're one away from a casualty, right? Yeah. You're one away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I guess the the question here is: Are you okay introducing the possibility for the cascade? I mean, I, I 
I guess I'm okay with it, but I'd like to reduce the possibility as much as we can to avoid like a crazy number of morale rolls. I think I think the I think the morale should not um, the three DP and one casualty should be eliminated. But the three DP, if it does result in a casualty, I think that's okay. I mean, because here again, it gets to the issue of if you've got a unit, if you've got a unit next to you, it's three, it's within three inches of the unit that's that's failed their morale. Yeah, and we've limited that to one unit. Yep, correct. So yep. It's either the one right next to you, which makes a lot of sense. They could have a follow-on crack, or it's somebody behind you who has enough DP already that, you know, your whole situation is ripe for crisis, right? And I'm okay with that. I mean, it's basically would say to me, I've been in combat here. I've got units behind me that have accumulated a bunch of DP, and now the front line just fell back and triggered one more DP on this unit, tripped it into a casualty, they did a morale roll, and then you could have a cascade. But it's it's a mini cascade. It's not the major cascade possibility. Okay. I think that's absolutely worth going after. Um, I'd love to see that. I hope I see that at Brandywine. That would be awesome. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll see in tomorrow's playtest, I guess. Uh, I do think it's worth trying. Yeah. Well, um, so this, before you, I don't know, before we leave Melee, and we, I'm not to say we were, but I, I, I think the whole Melee results table obviously has to be recalibrated uh, to all the potential outcomes. Like, we didn't see, and we wouldn't have seen any minus nines, you know, in the way we had it arranged. So the question would be, after you run the numbers on this, what's what's really likely to happen. Uh, and we also talked about tweaking so that you don't have a tie. Yeah, I think we got to change the locked in combat. Now, the reason that we never got a minus nine, uh, statistically, is again, because we went to a dice probability system. Mm-hmm. You know, Andy's original rules were much more deterministic, so you were kind of guaranteed to have a lot yeah, more you were adding. 12, 13, potentially, yeah. Exactly. But when you're rolling 12 or 13 dice and you only hit on a five or better, you're not going to get that differential. So I agree that we we should recalibrate it and zero should be the only outcome for locked in combat. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. negative one, zero, minus one, or right. plus one. Because um, so, we spent yes. a lot, basically most of the roll, and I think it'll be different with the new uh, stats, but uh, yeah, we, were, we we had a lot of plus one, zero, minus one. Uh, so. I think we can easily adjust that. Yep. Um, well, to me, that really, getting that resolved, agreeing that morale does have a role, and I like it, I like that trigger, that's clean, you're a casualty. Um, it seems to me, what was the, where were we at we had to go down here it was um we we're still trying to resolve the firing whether it was kept the same as melee i think you we recognize that militia doesn't have volley fire so that should have an impact so uh, here's where here's why i skipped ahead to morale now that we've talked about morale and how important the classes are going to be there I don't know if I'm quite as worried about the class being so paramount in melee. And and maybe I'm not thinking about this correctly, but I feel like 
I feel like the, the, <laughs> the idea we just introduced for morale is going to have a huge consequence in the game because casualties do happen quite frequently. So we, we have just introduced something that is going to have a major consequence. So maybe we don't need to tinker so hard with melee and shooting. Yeah, so the morale, the, 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 the class difference largely comes out in the fact that if you're if you both taking casualties so it's not affecting the combat as much and assuming you both get a casualty or one of you gets a casualty from that combat then you know obviously a grenadier is going to stay there more likely than a militia but it just gets back to the question of you know is there no benefit for for class so so because, you know, so it's basically the combat ends up being so it advantages larger units. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I like the I like the imp the, re the emphasis of class in the melee. Uh, I think. I get it. I don't want it to have to redo everything, but uh, I did like where that was going because it does seem like a combat outcome should have to do. Remaining after combat absolutely has to do with class, right? But you've got to win the combat, and that could look often off, off, pretty random if you don't have any any uh, class differences, right? It's basically, oh, okay, I took a larger unit, I've got more dice, um, so you'll have grenadiers sticking around. But why did they? Why they have to test? That's the, I don't know, but, <laughs> I, but I, 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 I feel like, I actually feel like they fit together pretty well. Um, I, I get, if your, if your issue is the tweaks to melee and what they require for firing, um, I don't know. I think there's something to the changes regarding class. Well, look, this, the lack of symmetry hurts me a little bit, but we could just, we could just say you you get half the number of dice in combat and then not touch firing. We could just leave the shooting alone, which is going to make shooting very effective, which we want. We want to incentivize people to shoot. Mm -hmm. And then maybe maybe it's just different in melee. Maybe it is just a different mechanic. You cut the number of dice, you know, cut your bases in half, rounded down. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can live with that. I mean, I, I, I certainly, I mean, I think symmetry is the goal but there's a point at which it's like okay um there's precedence there's no reason you can't do it that way in combat versus shooting you're still counting the the success as a five and six five yeah five and six so people are throwing dice how you get to the number of dice you throw i mean it's pretty simple either way um yeah maybe i'm just too hung up on the symmetry at least we avoided adding different si dice for different classes. Uh, no, that, that <laughs> idea came up. We're not doing that. We're not, <laughs> screw that. I'm not doing that. Last thing on my list here, redress ranks, the final step. Everybody hated this in our last play test, and I kind of didn't like it either. It's just, when you have so many units on the table, it is really hard to remember <laughs> Who moved? Who didn't move? Who got shot at? Who didn't get shot at? It yeah. just, 
Well, all and, of those and, and, qualifiers, I would, I, I would, the qualifiers are just, you can't keep up with them. It doesn't work. And, and when we did keep up with it, we found out that basically nobody got to redress ranks. Right. right. Everybody yeah. was engaged. So it was like, okay, why are we even doing this step? Like one unit on the table gets to recover one DP. I keep coming back to people kept forgetting some steps. You know what I mean? Um, and this was one. But it was even the movement sequence with the charge. Now, maybe that's because were we resolving the melees right away with the charge or were we just locking them into place and then going on about our business? It felt like we were locking shit. we were locking them into place. But then we were people kept forgetting to move because everybody's used to moving and then firing. Right. And this game is fire, then move. That's what's. The, yeah. OK. But I have no problem getting rid of the, the redress ranks. The only thought I had in terms of, again, some way to remove disruption points, not that maybe they matter as much anymore, but, um, you know, if you're a certain number of inches away from the enemy, no matter what, you know, can you remove a disruption point? So the point is those those units that just had their morale collapse, right, they're now well out of the game. Can they at least remove disruption points is there something there i'm totally in favor yeah i i don't think we should get rid of this step in the game i just think that we should make it way easier oh yeah like, okay then that's, something that's, that doesn't require you to remember what happened no, but you can't do that and i love your idea you measure if you're x number of inches away you can recover this many dps and i do still like the idea of there being a class difference here absolutely i i'm a big fan of class differences greg absolutely yes oh i know that <laughs> i know that about you oh yes as as am i tom i mean come on no that's on. i think that's great you drop all those qualifiers make it a distance based and then you just if you know a grenadier way back can recover faster than a militia so would you i'm just uh, uh, specifically, would you make the distance the same for everybody, and would you keep four steps here? So, I mean, what would it be? The fourth class unit, he can't recover anything because he's crappy. Third class gets to pull off one. Second class pulls off two. First class pulls off three. Like that—that that seems like a lot of DPS, honestly. What, what's the role of the leader in recovering DPS? They—they they have to. Uh, so they have to. They have to. If they want to use that, they have to use a dice rally. Attach. They have to do a rally. Yeah. And and so maybe maybe a fourth class can only rally with a leader. So hmm. that might be it, a way. And then it's and then it's one, one and then two as it is today. Uh, or I'm just trying to think of I, three is too many, I think, for the first class to rally off. OK, uh, I don't know if you need one. Or you combine the classes, I think first should be. Kind of combine second and third, and then fourth needs a leader to do it. Okay, anything. so you would collapse this down into sort of three groups. Yeah. First class is still its own thing. Second and third class are together, and then fourth class is its own thing. That's, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I, I agree, three DPs seems like too much to me. What, what other way would you collapse it or simplify it? The only other way I would do it... Um, well, you could collapse it into two categories, I guess. You could have first and second together. You could have third and fourth together. Or the other idea I had was that, you know, fourth class, he doesn't get anything. Or he could do the leader thing, as you just suggested. Third class can remove one. Second class can remove two. And then I would say first class can also remove two. 
but the distance requirement is different for him. Okay. Okay. Just, just a thought. I mean, in a way it's not as clean because now you're introducing a new measurement, but there aren't, as you know, there really aren't a ton of first class units in any of these battles. Right. And you want them to be special. Right. Right. So, you know, maybe I like that. I like that. They're they They can get their stuff together a little bit closer. Um, so what do we, where we, what was the distance? Well, we're making that up right now. What is your thought? <laughs> well, I mean, movement uh, distance is six see. inches. I mean, the, the, the base movement is six and shooting yeah, is so six I, inches. I was thinking two, two moves like, so 12 inches for anybody except a first class could be six. More, more than six away. Yeah. More than six away. More than 12, more than six. So that way you have to be outside of shooting range no matter what. Right. Right. Well, I think we've got <laughs> quite a, quite a few changes to consider. <laughs> Six days before <laughs> before the game. <laughs> well, it's the only way to do it. You've got to have a deadline, an immovable deadline, and then you know. It's, but the beauty is, you know, we'll see what ha- Brandywine in some ways will be a bit of a play test itself. I mean, in the end, we'll learn a bit that we'll probably have to tweak after that. You know, so. But I think I think we've we're keeping the constraints of you know, the type of uh, gamers we're going to be playing with on the 25th. Um, I think it's it's still right in the zone. I agree. So we've already been yammering on here for an hour and a half, and I think it's about time that we probably wrap up this session. But I think we ought to leave people with um, a little bit of teaser for what our next session might be about. And that is, you know, what comes next? And that's something that we've, touched on a couple of times in this conversation that, oh, well, yeah, after we do the Brandywine event, I think we're still going to, you know, we're still interested in these rules. And I think we both like the direction that it's going. And this is a podcast about developing homebrew rules. And I suspect that pretty much any war gamer who has ever developed a homebrew rule has come to a point <laughs> with their game where they start to think, well, uh, what am I going to do with this? I mean, mm-hmm. is this just for me and my club? will this never see the light of day outside of my basement or am I going to make this available for free online? Am I going to try to sell this thing? And, um, you know, you've, you've muddled around with some homebrew rules before. Um, what goes into that thought process? I mean, I've developed a number of homebrew rules, a couple of which I've published and most of which I have not published. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what's that thought process like? I mean, at what point do you start to think to yourself, I should keep this into my in my basement <laughs> uh, versus, you know, I should let other people experience this? Well, I think one of the interesting things we found when we started the Brandywine project was we just couldn't find a set of rules that hit all the requirements for us. Uh, you know, a little bit ease of play, you know, more compact, um, and so we ended up doing this because there really was nothing exactly like we were looking for. So to me, it's sort of like, you know, now that we've done the work, it it I, I it's a great candidate for releasing into the wild because that need is there, I think. Um, and I think um, I think hopefully after this playtesting and folks having seen the evolution of the thinking, I think they'll have a, you know, it's uh, we, you and I both love reading design notes. Well, we've done now, you know, hours of <laughs> design notes on this. So I would certainly think it's a great candidate for getting out there at some point when we're happy with it. 
Um, I agree. And what that will look like, I'm not, I don't think we know at this point. I think we both agree that we probably want to put this thing into the wild, but how or where remains to be determined. And we can talk about that in our next podcast. And I'm sure you and I will talk about it off air as well. But I know that uh, so far we've been calling this our loose files variant. <laughs> and, I haven't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at some point it is going yeah. to need another name <laughs> i called it american scramble for a while but <laughs> i like american scramble <laughs> uh so let's uh as we wrap up this podcast let's leave people with something to think about uh you and i have each been brainstorming potential names for this and um your list is a little bit longer than mine uh i'll read my list first i came up with three you came up with more than three uh mine were all sort of um I love coming up with titles, by the way. I mm. think this is just like a really fun part of the process for any game, whether you're going to publish it or not. And uh, all of mine are, you know, period references. So there's live free or die, uh, join or die, uh, both popular slogans uh, among the, the rebels. And then uh, I also really like the password that the Americans had for the night that they crossed the Delaware on that famous uh, operation. Uh, and the the password for crossing the Delaware was victory or death. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of death in all three of, of my titles. Yeah, I see the theme there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very grim. All my titles are very grim. Yes. Well, they're punchy. I like that. So my list, I and we did this about a month or two months ago, and I was just I like looking for the quotes. I love the the names of your rules, like Altar of Freedom, I and mean, that's one of my favorite. I think it's one of the great names for American Civil War, but. So I was looking at quotes, mad for liberty. I don't know where that came from. Liberty was a big theme. A very good rebel, which is evidently a quote about Washington by the Hessians after uh, Trenton. Spark of liberty. Providence is always a theme. And also for me, it sort of captures, it's a ran, that random element of, you know, although providence should not be random, but providence smiles, glorious cause. That's one of my great lines of, you know, I think it was a glorious cause. Smiles of providence, left of providence. To me, they all, at the moment, they were like, okay, these are workable. But I'll be honest, when I heard, uh, uh, which one do I like? Uh, which live one free did or you die. Like? Live free <laughs> or die. Uh, that one, to me, I said, you know what? It just sort of felt like I could see the cover. I mean, and I could see that maybe that's because you mocked one up. I don't know. but <laughs> I, I have been mocking up covers, yes. But no, I, Actually, I, I, I mocked one up for join or die, too, because... Joiner die is that famous like snake image, like right. the chopped up snake with all the the you know colony slogan that names on it. Yeah, that's the yeah that that's a good one. Uh, the live free or die, you know, the join or die is a little bit more like the threat. I get the point is if we don't join, then we'll die. But it also feels like join or die. <laughs> too menacing. <laughs> too, too menacing. <laughs> but I think the live free or die. I mean, one, it's it's punchy uh, and. Uh, I, I, I've been using that as my go-to since you came up with it. So I, I, I could certainly be happy on that side of the court. Well, we will uh, we will leave our, our loyal listeners, and my God, you must be loyal if you listen to this far, uh, <laughs> with, the, with these potential names that we are, we are batting around. And I don't know when we're going to record our next podcast, Tom, but it will probably not be until after the big Brandywine event. And, uh, I'm sure we'll do how a, I would fit it in. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we have a lot to do between now and then. Um, painting and terrain making and rule writing, apparently. Um, 
So yeah, uh, we'll we'll come back with uh, another edition of this podcast after that event, where we'll recap the event. We'll talk about uh, how our tweaks went, and uh, what further tweaks we need to make, and where this whole crazy Mad for Liberty project is going next. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Thanks everyone for sticking with us for this long podcast on how to design homebrew wargaming rules. And thank you to our patrons at Little Wars TV who make all this possible. By the time you're listening to this podcast, our Battle of Brandywine video with the Battlefield Trust will be posted on YouTube. Go to Little Wars TV and see how the rules turned out and leave a comment on what you thought about our series on designing homebrew wargaming rules. And just because the game is over doesn't mean Greg and Tom's journey with the rule set is over.